Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing in our series in the Psalms of Ascent, and here James Jordan is going to discuss Psalm 130. We still have some spots left for our 2022-2023 Theopolis Fellows Program. You can find more information about that program and coming here to study with us at the link down there in the show notes. We also want to remind you about our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference in the month of July. The theme this year is Hope and Victory, so all of the talks will be geared towards that. You can find information again about that conference and registration at the link in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 130. Psalm this evening is Psalm 130. Let's read it. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There are certain passages of the Bible that it's very difficult to preach upon. Genealogies are an example. They're there in the Bible to be studied, but hardly to be preached. Then there's the Song of Solomon. We might have a Bible class for married people only, but it's difficult to preach the Song of Solomon accurately in public. And then there are passages like this one which, as one begins to prepare to preach it, it becomes so personal and so much of one's own sinfulness is uncovered in the process of meditating that it becomes very difficult to preach it publicly. Fortunately for me, I don't preach on Wednesday night, but we only have a kind of a guided study of the passage, and that's what I would like to do tonight, simply to offer some thoughts on this passage, on its theology, perhaps to raise some of the more difficult questions in connection with it, because I think we all know Psalm 130. We all use it in our devotions from time to time. And that seems to be the best thing to do with it, rather than to preach it, as we usually think of preaching. The psalm starts at the bottom of the ocean. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. That's language used other places in the Psalter as well, and of course also in the book of Jonah. In Psalm 42, verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls, all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. But then we read following on, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. The psalmist says that he's gone down into the depths of the sea. The breakers have rolled over him. And then far more forcefully, perhaps, in Psalm 69, a psalm which our Lord Jesus Christ prayed upon the cross, because we read They gave me gall for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And Psalm 69 also comes from the bottom of the sea. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my soul. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. 
I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Here again the psalmist speaks from the terrible tribulation of being in what feels like death. Death because we know from Genesis chapter 1 that the world was created out of water. And we know from Genesis 6 to 9 that when God destroyed the first world, he destroyed it by causing it to revert to water. And we're familiar from other Bible studies that we've had in the past of how often being plunged into water or being drowned in water at the Red Sea and other places is a sign of death and of being returned to the original chaotic condition that God made the world in before he began to bring order out of it. Using those terms theologically and not philosophically. The book of Jonah is a good illustration of this whole principle. Jonah was told to do something and didn't do it. We're not told that Jonah sat down and thought, the Lord wants me to go to Nineveh, and I am simply not going to do it. Rather, we can imagine that Jonah went through a process of coming up with reasonable-sounding excuses why he shouldn't go to Nineveh, and eventually did not do so. And the Lord killed Jonah and put him at the bottom of the sea, and then after three days he was resurrected. This in a type, we don't necessarily have to believe that Jonah really died, but going down into the ocean is a sign of death, and death is the curse for sin. And so the psalmist moves from his present state under the tremendous weight of suffering that he's going through, and he cries out to God. Then he moves to a consideration of his sins. Lord, hear my voice, and let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Here we have put together what the Bible so often puts together, suffering and sin. In the Lord, sometimes the same language is used that dovetails together. In the Lord's Prayer we read, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That can be read one way to say, Do not put us to the test, but deliver us from the oppression of the evil one. But it can also equally well mean, Do not let us fall into sin. Don't take away your restraints. Don't let us go into evil. Both of these things go together because suffering calls sin to mind. When men begin to undergo suffering, their conscience is awakened and they feel guilt because men instinctively know that suffering is the result of sin. Even Job knew that. And Job's greatest temptation was to try to figure out exactly where he'd sinned because Job had not sinned. God said to Satan, you'll remember, why have you provoked me against him without a cause? So we know from the beginning of the book of Job that Job was a righteous man and that there was no specific sin for which Job was being punished. Job was like Christ. People were pressing him without cause, but unfortunately we don't stand in that position very often, and our minds are very quick to come up with all kinds of possibilities of things that maybe have called down the wrath of God against us when we begin to suffer. And so when we find ourselves at the bottom of the sea, then we begin to think about our iniquities. This raises one of the great mysteries of Christian theology, and that is how it is that Christians can sin. How is it that a Christian can sin? If the Holy Spirit is with us, if God is directing our lives, how is it that Christians can sin? Are Christians characteristically people who sin by sitting down and thinking, God has said to do this, but I'm not going to do that, looking this prohibition full in the face, looking at the command, thou shalt not commit adultery, I'm simply going to break that command and commit adultery. Is that the way Christians think? No. Self-conscious, high-handed sin is pretty rare in Christian circles. 
what we wind up with is what the Bible sometimes calls sliding or falling into sin or being overtaken with sin, almost as if it's not our fault, although the Bible is quick to point out that it is our fault. Do men sin without really realizing it? One of the difficult questions in theology and philosophy. In Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, we read a description of what we might call a sin of ignorance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery, or if he is extorted from his companion and has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, see, that's an easy thing to do. You find something that somebody's lost and you just take it. Even though maybe you know who it belongs to, you begin to rationalize. So that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man might do, then it shall come to pass, when he sins and becomes guilty, suddenly he's overtaken with a sense of guilt, that he shall restore what he took by robbery and what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add one-fifth part to it. Now that's one example. We see also this kind of thing in Numbers 15, 27 to 31. Also, if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. And then it goes on down in verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly with a high hand, whether native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. And then we immediately have an example. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day, and those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron. And they put him in custody because it had not been declared what to do with him. That, in context, is an example of a high-handed sin, something the man did self-consciously when they examined it. Are men self-deceived? Yes. Greg Bonson wrote a Ph.D. dissertation on self-deception. Self-deception is one of the very difficult and knotty problems in philosophy. How can a man know what is right and also not know what is right? We know the law of God is written on the heart of every man. So how can a man sin unintentionally? We all know the law of God. In Romans chapter 1, we have an expression of the self-deception of man. Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God is making it constantly evident to them. And then it goes on, and it says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but became empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. All men know God, all men suppress that knowledge, and so in a sense they're ignorant. Does that excuse them? No. Does it qualify what's going on? Yes, in a sense, the law has a stricter punishment for sins with a high hand. Men blind themselves. This is a tremendously difficult problem to explain rationally, and yet we all know about it. Men blind themselves. I'd like to take a couple of examples out of the Bible to show you some of the ways in which people get themselves into sin, and then it's too late. And they both come from the life of David, because David, after all, was a man after God's own heart. And if we can understand a little bit about how David could sin, maybe we can understand the mystery of how it is that a regenerate Christian with the Holy Spirit in his heart can sin. 
If God loves us and superintends our lives, why does God ever allow us to sin? After all, God has all the grace and power. Why doesn't God reach down and cause us so that all of our thoughts are always right? Why does God leave us to sin? In fact, as predestinarians, we would have to ask a further question and say, why does God cause us to sin? For the life of David will help us to understand that. Let's take an example, David and Bathsheba. What do you suppose happened with David? One day David was staying in the palace when it was time for the kings to go forth to war. And since the ark of God was in the field and David was the anointed Messiah king, David should have been there with the ark of God. There's no question about the fact that David is condemned for not having gone with the ark into battle. And yet David stayed behind and it says in Second Samuel that David got up in the cool of the day, that he'd been lying in bed all day long. Any man will tell you that that is a dangerous thing to do in terms of sexual drives. David gets up in the evening after lying around all day long and he sees a beautiful woman and without even the slightest hesitation, it seems, he calls her and takes her even though he knows that she is the wife of another man. And then, to add to it, David has her husband murdered. So he's guilty of adultery and murder. Flagrant open adultery and murder. But that didn't happen in David's life all by itself. You see, David has set a pattern in his life. David had dug a pit And then one day, standing on the edge of that pit, the ground gave way and David slid in. Because David had a wife whose name was Michal, the daughter of Saul. But when David escaped from the palace, and you'll remember that very romantic story about how Michal came to David in the night and got him out of the palace at night, and and how that could make a great novel and all this. And yet David's out in the field, and David comes across a beautiful woman named Ahinoam, and he marries her. Then he comes across another beautiful woman named Abigail, and he marries her. And by and by, we begin to see that David is collecting all these wives and concubines. You see, David did not discipline himself in that particular area. He established a habit or a pattern in his life of sin, because the Bible in Leviticus 18.18 forbids polygamy. Now, when the sin confronts itself, suddenly David falls into it. It didn't happen at random. God is not a random God. If we fall into certain sins, it's generally because we've set ourselves up for it. That seems to be part of the message in the life of David. And then David had to pay heavily for that sin, as you know. He suffered a fourfold penalty. The baby died, two more of his sons died, and one of his daughters was raped. That's a fourfold death penalty meted out on David for his sin. And yet David has set himself up in this area... And that's why suddenly when God decided to withdraw restraint from David, and David plunged right down into the path in which he'd established a pattern. Now let's take one more example, and I would like you to turn there if you are minded to do so. If you've been waiting for me to tell you to turn somewhere, now's the time to do it. 2 Samuel 24. In 2 Samuel 24, we find that David decides to number the people. And this is something of a mystery why David would number the people. But we do have one clue elsewhere in the life of David. And that is that David was not allowed to build the temple of the Lord because he was a man of blood. David apparently was overly militaristic and nationalistic in his mindset about the army. And so the king said in verse 2 to Joab, the commander of the army, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, mark this, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. And so the people were numbered against the advice of Joab, who was hardly a spiritually minded man. 
But even Joab knew that this was a dangerous thing to do. We won't go into all the reasons why, but then we find in verse 10, and this is very remarkable, now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. Literally, David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. Has that ever happened to you? I know it has to me. I get involved in something, and in the back of my mind, I know that this is wrong, and yet I get involved in it. And then one day, suddenly, something happens, and my conscience smites me, and I realize that I've gotten caught up in something. And it's my fault, because I suppressed the people around me, the Joabs, the warnings that God gave, don't do this, and yet... I went into it anyway, and there's a sense in which I did it self-consciously, and there's a sense in which I slid into it. God removes restraint. What keeps us from sin is that God restrains us. But then the question is still there, why doesn't God restrain us all the way? If God loved David, and we know he did, and David was a man after God's own heart, and we know he was, why didn't God restrain David completely? Why is it that we read in verse 1... Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The Lord provoked David to number the people. That is the real mystery. And I think that we can get some help if we look at it this way. That our sins and our righteous deeds are not what count for or against us in salvation. And thus God's first and foremost interest is to perfect us, not necessarily to keep us from every sin. What's the result in your life when God allows you, or let us say incites you to some sin and you get caught? In the future, you're much more careful. God's interest is in ultimate holiness, and I think that that is the way that we must understand why it is that Christians still sin. God allows us to sin. God does not restrain us from sin 100%. Why? So that we may learn about ourselves, that we may learn more to appreciate redemption. And this is the method God uses to build up our own restraints against sin. You can be sure that David was much more careful about adultery in the future after the experience with the wife of Uriah. We may be sure that David walked much more carefully with the Lord after the incident of 2 Samuel 24. And it seems that this is the way God chooses to teach us about ourselves and the depth of our own depravity. Because ultimately it's God who removes the restraint and allows Christians to fall into sin. It's for our good. We can turn it to good. Now how do we turn it to good? Since God wills good for us, how do we turn our own sin to good? Psalm 130 is one of the passages in the Bible that gives us some insight into how to do that. It's designed to be prayed and meditated on, but let's tonight just look at it briefly. Out of the depths have I cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's the question. And yet the answer is, the reassurance is, that there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. In spite of the experience of death and the curse for sin, in spite of the suffering that we go through when our conscience smites us or when other people persecute us because of things that we've done wrong, yet there is forgiveness with God and that we can stand. The Lord has chosen not to mark iniquities because he has chosen to redeem Israel, as the psalmist goes on to say. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Why feared? One would think that it would say that thou mayest be loved. 
But we have to remember that forgiveness is forgiveness of sin. And sin brings us into the presence of God in fear. And yet we must never forget that the essence of our salvation is that our sin is forgiven. It's not ignored. It's forgiven. It's there in the background, forgiven. And thus there's fear. And of course in the Bible, true fear is the fear that's mixed with love, not the fear that's mixed with hate. It's the fear that's mixed with longing for covenant fellowship. It's not the fear that's mixed with hatred and a desire to run away from God. It's something like reverential awe, but it's more to it than that. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. The forgiven man fears God. He walks softly. Even Ahab, a man who was ultimately not forgiven, yet when God forgave him, it says for a time, Ahab walked softly. Because Ahab knew that he might have been killed and put to death. The man who is forgiven has trembled in the face of God and he's careful and he's precise and he fears God. Now that's the reason why God would let us sin. God might let us sin and might let our hearts be smitten that we might be careful that we might learn to fear him. Now there's more to it than this because the psalmist does not teach us any more than the history of David teaches us that once we've done wrong and begin to suffer that there is instantaneous deliverance from suffering once we confess sin. David didn't find that. When Nathan came to David, David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, yeah, you have, and now it's going to be hard on you. And then there were consequences. The first consequence is that David's baby died before it was circumcised, which is a sore trial for his faith. Yet David saw through the sacrament to the reality and was convinced that the child was with the Lord, even though the child had not been granted the sign of initiation into the covenant. And then there comes a time when Amnon, David's son, decides that he's going to be just like Daddy. Daddy says, I take what I want. And so Amnon decides that he's going to take what he wants. So he takes Tamar. All of this flows out from David's sin. Because like father, like son. And then Absalom decides that he's going to be like Daddy too. Daddy's a man of blood, so Absalom's going to be a man of blood. Like father, like son, Absalom kills Amnon. And Absalom leads a revolt. And this goes on year after year. David has to suffer consequences. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope my soul waits for the Lord. The suffering may go on for a long time. If you're an important person and your sin is great. Same way with numbering the people. You remember that the angel gave David the choice of three things. Three days of one horrible disaster. Three months of another. Three years of another. David had to choose. Would you like to make that choice? But David was the covenant leader. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He had done the wrong. Now he had to measure out the penalty. What a position to be in. And so the psalmist is realistic. You don't get out of the bottom of the sea overnight. It took Jonah three days. It took David years and years. It may take us some time when these kinds of things happen to us. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. He doesn't just patiently endure suffering. There's no stoicism here. This is post-millennial. This is optimistic. This man knows that despite the tribulation, there will come a time of deliverance. And so he waits. He doesn't simply stoically endure the tribulation. But he has a hope and he has a confidence that it will come to an end. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word, in his promises, in the promises of coming deliverance do I hope. For this man in the Old Testament, it was the promise of the coming Messiah. In our day, it's the promise of the victory of the church and also the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection. 
It's still that hope and the knowledge that God will deliver us. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. And then it's repeated, the watchman for the morning. This is resurrection language here, night giving way to day. The rising of the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. The rising of the sun, frequently in the Bible, a sign of the ascending of the kingdom of God in the world. And so here this man, like the watchman in the temple who watched for the rising of the sun, he in the Old Testament times watched for the coming of the Messiah who would bring true deliverance to the people. And although we don't watch for exactly the same thing, the experience is similar. And so finally the psalmist begins, even in the midst of his suffering, he can rejoice and he can exhort Israel and all of those around him as they walk toward the feast. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is plenteous redemption. For he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Redeem, again, is one of those words that has the double meaning. Redeem from suffering, redeem from slavery and from death, also redeem from sin. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. God will do this in time. He has done it, we may say, in the past, and we have confidence for deliverance in the future. So as we pray this psalm on our own, we always find, don't we, that we start out at the bottom of the sea, but we wind up ascending into heaven. And that's the order of thought in this psalm, the order of experience. And, of course, I can only encourage all of us to remember this when we experience suffering, conviction of sin, and to use the psalm as it was designed. From the depths I cry to you, Yahweh. Master, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the sound of my cries for mercy. If you recorded liabilities, Yah, Master, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness, so that you are feared. I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the master more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Place your hope, O Israel, in Yahweh, for with Yahweh is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he is the one who will redeem Israel from all his liabilities. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, age after age. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.